Jesus has the keys of hell and death. Therefore, Satan cannot take a life. Is that correct? No. Uh, I know what you mean. Technically, he shouldn't be able to. Okay? But he's a thief. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So, technically, he doesn't have the authority to any more than a bank robber has the authority to take money out of a bank. But he still does it. That's why you're God's policeman. Right? That's why you're supposed to stop him. So, anywhere you see him, stop him. Okay? Now, um, yeah. Uh, actually, we've got a couple other questions. That's, we'll probably go in more into that a little bit more on. Um, yeah, basically anything that has to do with life, godliness, provision, healing, any of those things are all included in the atonement. Right? You go back to Isaiah 53, you go into... Uh, well, actually we're going to talk about Isaiah 53 here in a second... But anything that's included in any of the atonement scriptures has to do with everything that has to do with man's life, essentially. Right? Um, matter of fact, there's even scriptures that talk about leading and being led by the Spirit, as we would, would say, where God said very clearly, I will lead you with mine eye. Right? I will lead you with my eye. In other words, what you see, if your mind is renewed to the Word of God, then you will start to see with the eyes of God. You will see what's wrong, and you will see what should be made right. And as He guides you with His eye, which will line up with Scripture, because your mind is renewed to the Word of God, then you will be able to see situations and say, that's not... I mean, come on, it, it, you don't have to be too spiritual to, to go to children's hospital and see some of these babies and the children... And to look at them and say, that's not right. Right? For you to be... Let me, I'm going to be very... I'm going to say something that sounds really weird or, or wrong to you, possibly. But I want you to understand why I'm saying it this way. If you could go to a hot children's hospital, especially. Look at those children. And, and you can go there and you can say, this is not right. And to think that God somehow had something to do with that then, honestly, you should be God more than He should be. You understand what I'm saying? Now, I know that shocks people the way I say that, but I say it that way on purpose. The fact that you can even look at a child or a, or a sickness, or not just children, but we say children because we know how innocent and pure and, and we know they didn't do anything wrong, right? Many times adults will say, yeah, but what did they do? You know, that kind of, that kind of thing. But... The fact that you can look at a situation like that and, and, and even have compassion, any person that has that proves the existence of God. Because as a human, generally, we care about ourselves. We're selfish, we're self-centered, that kind of thing. But even most humans have that in them, which is that little spark of, of knowledge of God. To know that that's not right. That's why I said many times, you know, even doctors many times are more on the same page with God than the church is because at least they take an oath to try to eradicate disease. Whereas the church, we try to say, well, it must... See, if you go into any type of psychology, they will show you that there is a certain amount or a, a certain mechanism in humanity which is a defense mechanism 
that whenever, and, and you see this in prisoners of war, and in people like in Rwanda that went through the genocide in Rwanda, and all these different situations. When a person goes through enough hell, for lack of a better word, rather than just losing their mind, usually they will switch into this defense mechanism which starts looking for a reason for this to be happening. And when they switch over to that, that is a coping mechanism to keep them from losing their mind. There must be some greater good. There must be something coming out of it. There must be a reason. There are Nazi atrocities that the only thing that kept some of the people that went through them from losing their mind was they kept thinking, there has to be a reason why I'm going through this rather than just accepting the fact that a person can give themselves over to absolute evil and become totally demon-possessed and don't care who they hurt or why they hurt them and there can be no logic to it, no reason, nothing other than pure evil. But people have that mechanism in them that will say, okay, I have to find something in this to make this logical of why I'm going through it. Now, Psychology has found that, calls it a defense mechanism. Uh, Augustine found it and called it the sovereignty of God to an extreme. Alright? Now, if you take the sovereignty of God to an extreme, you end up losing man's free will to choose and to determine whether he will serve God or not. And so, you know, you say, was well, it Arminianism or Calvinism? And it's, it's alright. Yeah, you know, people say, well, do you believe in predestination? Yes, most definitely. I believe that I am predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Right? That's what I believe about predestination. Right? And I believe that God has given me a free will, and that by my free will, I will bring Him glory the more I bring my free will into alignment with His will. Right? And into the conformity of the image of Christ. So, now, do I know that God is behind the scenes working some things? Of course. You know, he's, he's playing nine-level chess, okay? He's got to get all these things working at the same time in the same place and bringing people together, and it's amazing how he pulls all that together. At the same time, he, we have to realize that we have used the sovereignty of God as an excuse and as a cop-out to not do something, right? When in reality, it's... What we should be doing is what he has commanded us to do. You see, people say, well, do you believe in the sovereignty of God? Yes, and I believe he sovereignly put in the Bible that I'm to lay hands on the sick and heal them. Right? Well, well where does the sovereignty of God come in? In the fact that I'm obedient in, in his sovereignty. He put it in there that I can do this because he knew through the ages that I would read this and I would begin to do it. So his sovereignty put it in there. Isn't that right? And so, I'm not, people say, well, but you're taken away from the sovereignty of God because you act like everybody should be healed and, and there should be... Yeah, but I'm not taken away from the sovereignty of God. As a matter of fact, to be honest with you, I'm adding to His sovereignty. You say, how are you adding to it? Because I'm increasing His sovereign reign over people who are not being reigned over by Him. Amen. See, every, see, here's what happens. Every time a person gets healed, five things happen. Now, I agree. Now, understand, I'm not all about healing. It just happens to be an area that I am skilled in. A lot of it has to do because of life experiences and different things that help direct me that course. People say, well, see, that was all God. No. No, it was not. What happened was the devil made a mistake. He should have left me alone. That's what he should have done. 
but he but he pushed <laughs> but he pushed me to a point, and and to where I, where I finally decided I'm going to make my daughter's life that he took one of the most costly lives he ever took. Right, and and because of that I'm going to make him wish that he'd have just left us alone. Right, he shouldn't have stirred us up. Simple as that. It's going to cost him. Right, that's my duty in life is to cost him. Right now, so. What I've done in, in studying this, like I said, healing is not the end all. Right? If someone just knows healing, if they just study healing, they're going to be lopsided. And usually when they do that, they're going to get off into some weird doctrine. Okay? They're not going to be balanced. But the principles that I'm teaching you work across the board. They work for deliverance. They work for salvation. They work for healing. They work for prosperity. They, you know, when, I, when I say prosperity, I'm not talking about this... Ultra prosperity stuff, all right? You already know that by now, I hope, right? We're talking about, in Deuteronomy 8.18, it says, It is God who gives you the ability to create wealth so that he may establish his covenant on the earth, right? Whatever I have is his. Therefore, whatever comes into me should be used toward the expansion of the kingdom of God, right? Not to heap up here and die with a big bank account. That is not my, my goal is to die empty. All right? I've already told my kids, get all you can get now because when I'm gone, it's already going to be distributed. All right? And so, you know, about the only thing I will probably have when I die will probably be, I hope, I pray, that they say about me what they say about John Wesley. That when he died, he left, what, 40,000 sermons. He had six pieces of silver in his pocket that he used to pay the men who were his pallbearers. He had a set of silverware that he traveled with him. And he left the Methodist church, which was the power of God on the earth when he was alive. Okay? It is not the same power now that it was then. But that's what I want to leave as a legacy. Not, I hope, Dr. Summerall, I went to, uh, I've been up to South Bend several times even since he passed away. And I remember when he was alive, he used to always tell us, when I die, on my tombstone, I want them to write... Here lies Lester Summerall, a man of faith. And so, I went up there one day to see, because I wasn't there when he, when he died, and I wasn't there when he got buried, and I, I wanted to see if his children, he has three sons, uh, Stephen, Peter, and Frank. And, uh, matter of fact, Stephen baptized my son when we were there. And we, um, I'm talking about years back, when we were with, there with Dr. Summerall. And so I went by the cemetery there just to see the, the gravestone. And on the gravestone it says, Lester Summerall has the dates of his life. And then it says, here lies a man of faith. And one of the things that always stood out to me about Dr. Lake was that at his eulogy, when he died in 1935, there was a man there that worked with him named B.S. Hebden, pastor of the church when he passed passed away. And he said, in the eulogy, he said, Dr. Lake, when Dr. Lake came here to Spokane, he found us sick, defeated, and believing that victory was over there. But he came here and he showed us. It says he healed us, he set us free, and he showed us that victory was over here, not over there. And so another man that part of the eulogy there was this. He had the ability to impart faith to his hearers. And I thought, that's what I want said about me when I die. Because, if, see, if I give my son every dime I've got, it can be spent... It'll be gone, and he'll have to find more. 
But if I can give him the knowledge of faith in God, he'll never be forsaken. He'll never have to be broke to the point where he can't survive in an area. And he will always know that wherever he's at, he will survive and thrive because God is with him and God is the source. That's it. So that's the key. That's the legacy that we want to leave. Now, I said all that. Get back to this. If in the church we have to come to a place, as I said in the morning service, where healing is not an event, but it's a lifestyle. As long as we make it a big deal. You know, every time we're going to pray for somebody, let's bring them up to the front and let's make a big show. In here, we definitely should not do that. All right? If you go to Walmart, you know, I understand the draw for that for a time and you can use it. You know, if you're going to pray for somebody, you know God's going to heal them. Hey, no problem. Now think about this. If you really know God's going to heal them, you're not going to pull them over in between the clothes racks. Right? And let, let's, let's go over here and pray. Let's pray over here. Right? If you really know God's going to heal them, hey man, pull them out in the, in the aisle. Right? You might even want to tell, wait right here. I'll be right Come here. You want to see somebody get healed? Come here. Come over and watch this. Come and watch. Bring them over. Watch this. But now think about this. What we do in the church is we preach healing, hopefully putting faith into people to rise their faith up so they can get healed. Jesus didn't do that. The disciples didn't do that. Now, did people get faith by hearing? Yes. Did they get healed on their faith? Yes. Because Paul said, it says about Paul and Acts, that he perceived the man had faith to be healed, and so he took him by the hand and raised him up. Isn't that right? And he got healed. So I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying it's wrong to depend on that all the time. When you minister healing in public, you don't have time to preach three days about healing and kill all these traditions and sacred cows and all this stuff. Right? You have to have faith for them, and you have to be able to deliver them. Now, as long as you think God is your problem, you will never operate in faith. Because you're not going to be sure if they're going to get healed or not. Faith is knowing. Faith isn't, See, faith is not necessarily believing. Faith is knowing. There's a difference. And once you do it enough, it goes beyond believing into just knowing. You know, we have prayed for... More like I said, over 70,000 people that we know of, for sure. Out of that, I, that I know of, I have never prayed for a case of epilepsy that wasn't healed. Right? I've never, that I know of. Now, and we've kept records with most of them. There are other diseases that we, that we have a 100% success rate with. There are some that we have about a 94 to 97%. Across the board, 94 to 97% of all the people we pray for get healed. Right? Now... There are some diseases that we see instantly more than others. There are some that we see progressive more than others. Now, I don't like progressive, right? I mean, nobody does, right? I mean, I'll take it any way I can get it, but if I have, as we say in Texas, if I have my druthers, I'd druther not have it progressive, all right? I would druther have it instant, all right? So, but at the same time, that has to do not see... You really need to forget the people... And hopefully by now you know me well enough to know what I mean when I say this. You need to forget the people that stand in front of you. You need to forget God at that point. In other words, what I mean is you're not talking to them and you're not talking to God about them. By then, you should have already done all the talking to God about anybody that you need to do. Right? When you stand in front of them is not the time to start talking to God. When you stand, when the problem, when the crisis arises, that is not the time to start praying. 
You understand? See, when a problem arises, it will either be called a crisis to the unprepared or an opportunity to the prepared. Right? If you prepare ahead of time, it's an opportunity. If you don't prepare, you'll call it a crisis. So when you call me, and by the way you talk about it, I can tell if you were prepared or not prepared. Okay? But if you prepare ahead of time, it's not a crisis. Now, that means this. You're walking to the grocery store. You're over there in the dairy aisle or wherever it is. Somebody drops over dead. You don't have to... Now, this is the way the church lives. They drop dead. You look at them and you say, Alright, I'll tell you what. You put them back in the freezer. I'm going to go fast and pray for three days. And when I'm ready, I'll come back and raise them up. See, that's where the church lives. They wait for the crisis, then all of a sudden they try to get ready. See, that's, that's a church mentality. That's not the Bible mentality. That's why I keep bringing in this military thing. Because that's not a military mentality. See, Navy SEALs train every day like tomorrow's battle. And so when battle comes, they don't have to say, well, how, how quick can you get a team there? Well, we need at least uh, 30 weeks to get them trained up. Now, 30 weeks is too late. So you've got to live ready. Isn't that right? You train every day. You live every day. I, don't, I get called. I never know. I have answered the phone during the middle of, of uh, DHTs and training like this. You know, it start, it's on vibrate. And I, when it, if it rings while I'm speaking, a lot of times you'll see me. I'll take it out and look at it. And see if I recognize the number because there are situations we're dealing with around the country. Sometimes if it's not, I'll tell everybody, okay, I know we're only 15 minutes into this, but we're going to take a break. So everybody go to break. And I'll jump over here and take the phone call because I know it's an emergency. And the way I know it's an emergency usually is it'll say unknown. Right? Because it's hooked up to my 800 number. And when I get an 800 number call, meaning an emergency, somebody calls in and says, if this is an emergency and someone's going to die within the next 24 hours, that's what it says. You call my 800 number, that's what it says. If someone's going to die within the next 24 hours, press this button. And when you do that, it goes directly to my cell phone. And since the 800 number doesn't give me the number it's calling from, if it says unknown, I know it's coming through the 800 number, I know it's an emergency call. And so I will take the call, I'll send you on break. And I'll take the call because... I never know what's coming next. I could be standing here talking and my phone could go off and it could be somebody dropped into a river and drowned. It could be somebody just died of cancer. It could be a testimony of somebody just got raised from the dead. Okay, It could be any of those things. And it's kind of funny because when people call you, they almost always call me screaming. And I never know what it is until I get them calmed down. But when they call me screaming, it means one of two things. Somebody's dead or somebody's alive. Okay, usually came back from the dead or something like that. Right, so that's usually what it means. Now, most of the calls are the first. Somebody's dead or dying or some kind of situation. But what I'm trying to get across to you is that I don't have the luxury of foreseeing the future, of knowing what calls are coming in three days from now. And people's lives depend on me being ready. Now, personally, I made a decision early on. I would never depend. I would never put my life or my children's lives or my family's lives in the hands of someone and gamble on them being ready. Because I don't know what their level is. I don't know what their status is or their, their state of mind. You know? And believe me, the devil, the biggest, the number one fight day in Christian families is Sunday. 
just before you get to church. Why? Because you believe that you have to be in a certain frame of mind, a certain atmosphere, to be able to go to church and worship. And the devil wants to stop that. He wants to make sure that you come in and it takes you 45 minutes to even get all that garbage shaken off of you so that you can actually enter into worship or hear the word preached. He'd rather get you as tied up as he can. He doesn't want you coming in free where you can just come in and worship God and, and hear the word again. He wants to, he'll try to do everything he can to cause fights and car troubles and everything else you know, to try to stir you up in a negative way so that it takes you a while to shake all that stuff off before you actually enter in. And yet, what you have to realize is that whatever happens doesn't necessarily change your, your spiritual state. Right? The Bible says, be angry and sin not. But we think, if I get mad, whether I say anything or not, all of a sudden, well, now I can't even pray because you know, I'm not in the right frame of mind. Your frame of mind has nothing to do with praying. Praying is spiritual. Frame of mind is emotional and soulish. Two different categories. Right? I, I can I can be stirred up in my soul and yet in my spirit and be stirred up in my spirit and yet it be two different things. But see, as long as you think the soul is your spirit, you're always going to be tied up. You see? But once you start to realize it, you say, how do I know when I'm walking in the spirit? It's real simple. When you are walking in the spirit, you're doing the word. Right? When you're not doing the word, you're not walking in the spirit. Isn't that simple? So, isn't that, when, I, when I first started, I remember... See, I met Dr. Sumrall. I went to a, 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 it was called a Word Explosion, down at John Osteen's church back in 19, what, 81, I guess, something like that, 81, 82, yeah. And I went down there, and I wasn't, you know, ordained or a minister, classified as a minister or anything at that point. I was ministering, but I wasn't ordained or licensed or any of that kind of stuff. And so, I go to this meeting, and they say, we're going to have a minister's meeting, and we have a, a panel of ministers that are going to answer your questions. And so, I mean, Kenneth Hagin was there, John Osteen was there, R.W. Schambach, Lester Sumbrall, um, Kale Osborne. I mean, it was, you know, it's like a who's who in the, in the faith movement and the word and all that kind of stuff. So I'm there and I'm thinking, man, I want to go to this meeting. I want to get in there. But I'm not a minister. And, you know, they were, I thought they were checking people at the door, actually. And so I'm thinking, so as soon as it gets started, I just kind of slip in and sit down and I'm trying not to draw attention and listen and... And people are asking questions, and so finally it comes, you know, it kind of dies down a little bit. And, and I said, you know, I got a got a question for Doctor Summerall, and I asked him the question, and he looks at me, and he goes, and when he answered the question, finally I sat back down, and he goes, "How soon can you get to South Bend?" And I said, "Well, as quick as I can get there." Well, when you get there, come see me. I'm like, okay. So we go out, and I told, went back, told my wife, we're all, my rest of my family was all in this uh, meeting, and we told my wife, I said, I'm going to South Bend. And she said, why? I said, Dr. Simmerall said, come to South Bend. So I'm going. She said, okay. So and I had nothing. I didn't, have, I didn't even have a good car to drive. I mean, one that would take me there. I ended up leaving it with my wife, and I ended up going up on a bus. And when I get there, I have nothing. I had a bag of clothes with me. I didn't even have a place to stay. I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anything. I got off the bus, the main bus downtown. I rode a city bus out to the church. I get off the bus. I walk in the door. There's a receptionist. And, and I said, I'm here to see Dr. Summer. I mean, I got my bag. And I said, I'm here to see Dr. Summerall. She goes, do you, do you have an appointment? I said, no, but he's expecting me. He told me to come. And she said, okay. And she said, down that hall and door on your right. I said, okay. So I walk down the hall and knock on the door. And, and I hear this, come in. And it's a real deep, gruff voice. You know? So I open the door and walk in. And it's a long, 
office. It's not a square one. It's kind of long. And where I walk in, there's a couch and all this stuff over the walls. And you look down and he's at the other end at a desk facing me. But he's sitting writing. And see, I told my wife, I said, there's two things. If I get the answer to these two questions, it will change everything. Number one, how do I know when I'm being led by the Spirit? Is that right? And number two, how can I be sure of the will of God? What is the will of God? I thought, if I can get those two answers, everything else will work out. And so, we go up there, and I'm, I'm there, and I sit down, and I'm waiting, you know, and he's just writing, not saying anything. So I sit down on the couch, and I'm just kind of looking around, all this neat stuff he has over his walls from all over the world. And all of a sudden, he just, he's writing, and he just stops. And he looks up, and he goes, To know the will of God, read the Bible. To be led by the Spirit, do the Bible. <laughs> go back to writing. And I'm looking, I'm like, I guess I can go back home now. That's what I came for. <laughs> but I, I ended up, I went back. Actually, I stayed there a while. got a job. I had never done the kind of jobs that I did while I was up there. But I, you know what detasseling corn is? You know what it is? You know, it's got the little things. And you have to go through and rip them out. And it's, especially if you're not used to it, it's not an easy job. And so I got that job to raise money. And then when I got enough money, I went back down, got my family. We moved them all up there. And then we ended up. I actually went, I didn't work, I didn't uh, get on staff, but I was actually, um, my wife and I were over the prayer line. And so we had to find people to work the prayer line, and we couldn't find them, we worked it. And so we had to take the night shift because nobody wanted the night shift. And so every night we'd go up there, and the sanctuary was just off, and there's a reason I'm telling you all this, I'm not just bunny trailing, okay, there's a reason. But I got, there was a, the, the sanctuary was right there with all the pews, they had long pews, and my kids, when they went to sleep at night, we would put them on those pews and they would sleep there while we worked the prayer lines. And that was the first time we ever had somebody healed from a distance over a telephone. A man got a new heart. and I mean, just a list of things. Well, then one night, about 4 o'clock in the morning, it's quiet, it's dark. We got the run of the whole building, basically. And I started hearing this noise up front. And, I, you know, military background, all that stuff. Uh, I thought, okay, I've got to check this out. You know, there's somebody breaking in because it wasn't in the best part of town. And so I go sneaking up to it. It's all dark. And they had this one big light right over the doors. And there was a big map. And right there was this deal that said, untold millions yet untold. And so it had light. had the map on there. It had all the world there. And it shone right on that light. And you, there was a little kind of a glow. And everything else was dark. And so I'm sneaking up through there behind this pillar and that pillar and trying to find who's breaking into the church, you know, and I'm going to grab them or call the cops or something. Didn't really know what I was going to do at that point, but I was going to check it out. And so I'm sneaking up through there and Dr. Summerall walked in. Four o'clock in the morning, perfectly dressed, walks in, gets in that little light. And that little light shined kind of a, it shone a, um, like a little, well, just an area that you could walk in. And so he was walking up there and I, I watched him. I hid behind this pillar and I watched him, and he would look up at that map, and he'd say, that rebellion in the Congo is going to stop in Jesus' name. The president's a good man. He'll stay in power. And he just kept walking. And that, that was his prayer time. That's the way he prayed. And I saw him, heard him and saw him go through all these nations. Half of these guys he knew by name. Presidents and prime ministers and just called. And I, I think sometimes it was just by the Spirit. But he would call all these things out. And he would get up there, and he'd be walking back and forth. And I, I just stood there and hid. And that happened for like, I don't know, maybe a week. Every morning he'd come in. And I'd be over there hiding behind the pillar and watching him pray. He's, you learn a lot about a person when you watch him pray. You learn a whole lot. And so he was walking back and forth and he was praying. 
Finally, one day, I was over there hiding behind the pillar watching him. And he goes, Are you going to stay over there in the shadows or are you going to come out here and pray? <laughs> and I'm walking. And I, I wanted to kind of melt, you know, away. <laughs> so I, I get out there and I'm, I'm kind of walking. You know, you don't want to walk right beside him. You want to kind of do your own thing because I didn't want to make him think I was shadowing him, you know, back and forth. And so we're walking back and forth and he's praying and I'm over there and I'm praying. Oh, Lord bless you. He goes, Are well, you going to pray? Pray. And so all of a sudden it's like, oh Lord, I was going, you know, just he'd get loud. And so we did that for about, had to be, yeah, almost a year. And then one, I mean, one night around Christmas, because it gets, you know, South Bend, snow, cold weather, that kind of stuff. And, you know, that first time I ever saw somebody walking on the side of the road with snow skis was in South Bend. I thought, why am I here? You know, because that was not my area. But we had this car, and the car broke down. And I'll never forget it because we didn't make it to prayer line one night. And so, and he knew that. And so, when I saw him the next day, he said, Where were you last night? I said, uh, My car broke down. It's gone. It's history. We don't have a car. Hmm. And Brother Murphy, which was his brother-in-law, was right there with him. And he said, he turned to me and goes, Get this young couple a car by 5 o'clock today, and I don't mean maybe. And he turned around and kept on walking. By 5 o'clock, I had a car. I mean, it, was, and it wasn't you know, anything fancy, but it was a car. And it got us back and forth. But that's the way he did. He lived in a small house behind the church. I'm telling you, if there was ever a man of God, it was him. Fifty years of ministry, never a hint of scandal. Solid. I remember one time a lady came to, to the church there, and she, we were all leaving, and she lived over actually by him over there. And so she asked me, said, Brother Summerall, can I get a ride home? And Louise had already gone over to the house. And so he said, well, all right. And so they started getting in the car. And we were all out in the parking lot. And we'll never forget it because she's standing there. And she starts to get in the passenger side. He goes, nope, you get in the back seat. She looked at him and started getting in the back seat. And finally she says, Brother Summerall, ain't I good enough to sit up front? Why are you putting me in the back seat? He goes, you're good enough, you just don't have the right last name. He said, you're not a Summerall. And if I drive you over to your house and anybody around here saw me driving around with you in a car, rumors would be all over South Bend by the morning. He said, there's right ways to do things and right ways not to do things. He said, you're riding the back seat if you want to ride. And that's what, see, that's the way he, he was so spiritual and practical and just wisdom. We had a, a, some people, some homosexuals come to the church one time. They, they came in and told him, we want to be a part of your church. We like it here. The people are friendly. But we're homosexual. And, he, and they said, God made us this way. And so, we just want to know if it's okay if we be a member of your church. He said, well, first off, God didn't make you that way. He said, secondly, you can be a part of, you can, you can attend the church, but you can't be a member. Because to be a member, you've got to live a holy life. And he said, God didn't make you that way. And he said, because if God made you that way, if it's right for you, it would have to be right for everybody else. And if it was right for everybody else, in one generation, the whole human race would die out. And he said, so it can't be right for the human race, therefore it can't be right for you. And he said, and when you repent, you can be a member of the church. And so within six months, or actually it was like about three months after that, they were still there, opposite sides, Delivered, set free, and last time we were there, still there. Right? Just wisdom. You know? He told them one time, he said, <laughs> this is the other part that he told them while they were there, he said, if all the roosters were like you, I wouldn't have any eggs in the morning. 
And I thought, boy, that's just wisdom. You know what I mean? Just wisdom. He goes, that's why it ain't right. Okay. So, there were some people that came to him one time that believed in uh, what is generally called oneness doctrine. That, you know, Jesus is Father, Son, Holy Ghost, not in the Trinity. And they came and tried to convince him that they were right and that he should change his doctrine. They went through their whole spiel, 45 minutes, boom, 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 all this stuff. Finally, he looked at me and goes, all right, first, let's get things straight. You call Jesus Father. And they said, yeah. He goes, well, I call him my brother. So from now on, you will address me as Uncle Summerall. <laughs> and they looked at him and looked at each other and kind of like, this man is crazy. <laughs> And ended up getting up and leaving. Right? Didn't go into all the other stuff, but just that little thing just kind of blew him apart. Okay? <laughs> so, <clears throat> just that's what, when I saw that, I realized that I can be spiritual and walk in this world and be touchable and real and not have to protect the anointing. Come on, the anointing protects me. I don't protect the anointing. I, I'm not, I, I can't protect the Holy Spirit. That's like people saying, well, now, everybody be quiet, we don't want to grieve the Spirit. Let me tell you, you talking while I'm praying for somebody doesn't grieve the Spirit near as much as you walking past a sick person and acting like you don't see them. When people are talking at the back, I, I've had it done. Now see, if you talk at the back and you get loud, you may interrupt me, you may distract me. You are not distracting the Holy Spirit. You know why? He is focused. If there's a sick person here, where do you think he is? Right here. Right? That talk, I've had it happen before. I'll be praying for somebody, people talking loud and that kind of stuff, and I'm kind of distracted. And I, man, I'm telling you, it's like the Holy Spirit. No, Curry, right here, right here. These are the people who need help. Focus. I've never seen him grieve. I've never, meaning that he, well, you don't want to grieve him because he's like a dove, he'll fly away. Okay, he appears a dove, I understand that, but come on. He is also the same person who energizes the angels of God to go through an army and kill 186,000 in a night. And you're going to offend Him because you're talking? Come on. We're talking about the God of heaven and earth. We're talking about the greatest, mightiest warrior that has ever existed. Because before He was the God that heals you, He had to be the God who was a man of war because He had to fight for you. You know, everybody acts like Jesus went down into hell and you know, the devil said, oh, you're here. Here you go. Take the keys. That's not the description that the Bible gives. Now, he took the keys. Right? He has those keys. It's, it's a fact. But this thing, we act like there's not a real war going on. It's a real war. That's what hindered Daniel. The, the answer was sent the day he prayed. Isn't it right? But there was warfare going on in the heavenlies over this situation. Now, we think, well, now, we've got to pray, you know, because, you know, to get the answer. No, the answer was sent the day he prayed. But the hindrance was the fact that he didn't pull it on through because there are beings that try to stop you. But I'll tell you, we're not in that case. People, see, everybody tries to bring up, it's amazing, spirit-filled, charismatic Christians. You talk healing, you know what they bring up? Everybody knows. Paul's thorn, Timothy's stomach, uh, Paul left somebody sick somewhere. He's not sure where, but we know he left somebody sick somewhere. And Job. It's amazing. They know every one of them. And you say, give me five clear-cut scriptures that guarantee healing. Most of them can't do it. But yet we know every reason, every failure, every problem. First off, and we're going to get into this, there is not one evidence, one shred of evidence, that Paul's thorn was a sickness. Not one. 
Right? Now, there, there is things that people have tried to put into that, but I, pro- I can guarantee it, as a matter of fact. I'll show it to you before we get done. I actually have it on a CD too. We're going to, into detail in it. But it proves Paul's thorn was not sickness or disease. Okay? People say, yeah, but I guess I'm just like Job. No, you're not just like Job. Job didn't have a redeemer. Job didn't have an advocate with the Father. Job wasn't born again. He didn't have the Spirit of God dwelling within him. He was, he, we don't even know what kind of covenant he had with God. We didn't know any of those things. The book of Job was the oldest book in the Bible, reportedly. We don't know what he knew about God. We don't know what was promised to him. There is no record of God promising him anything. But even at the end, now people, people say, you happen to see, God gave Satan permission. If you want to read it that way, I suppose, but what it says is, look, behold, he's in your hands. In other words, I'm not giving him to you. He's there. Why? Because he was still not under the covenant. He was still not in the protection of God under the law. The, the law that provided the protection. And in the middle of that, and I can prove to you, because it says that Satan smote him with boils, not God. Isn't that right? He says Satan did it. And at the end it says, and God turned his captivity. That means that all that time he was in captivity. It said that God turned it and blessed him and gave him double back everything he had. He even, apparently got even a new wife and the whole bit, which was apparently a good thing, because any woman that will tell you to curse God and die, she's not the woman for you. <laughs> Amen? telling you, you, we don't realize sometimes what, what spouses and people around you will do. But all of these things, you know, Paul left, um, what was, oh, yeah, Timothy's stomach. Everybody's talking about, what, now see, he told him to take some wine for stomach. What, hello, if you go into most foreign countries, you take a couple of drops of wine, put it in the water, it'll kill all the bacteria. He, didn't, he wasn't telling Timothy, now Timothy, when, you, when your stomach gives you problems, go get drunk. He wasn't saying that. He wasn't using it as a, as a medical remedy. He was using it simply to say, look, purify the water. That dysentery will clear up. That's all there had to do with it. And yet, we, we try to make it... Well, you know, he left... Um, who was that guy now? He left somebody sick somewhere. Well, I can tell you, I've left people sick. We can go to Walmart. We could go through there and heal a hundred people. And I guarantee you, unless they locked the doors and don't let anybody new in... When I leave, there will be somebody we have left there sick because they're coming and going constantly. Gordon Lindsay gave an example one time where he went and prayed for a woman. And when he got back home, the, his wife said, what happened? And he said, well, we didn't see anything happen. And so he was kind of down about it. Went to church that night. The woman was there praising God and worshiping God. And he said, what, what happened? You were like this. She was five minutes after you left. I was healed. Well, we don't know what happened. With who Paul left sick. We don't know. I mean, come on. Paul was writing letters. Paul was... And he even told him later on. He said, God had mercy on us and delivered us. And delivered you. Isn't that right? So all this stuff that we try to build up and say... It's amazing how we will take... We will think the worst about God. And we always put the negative spin on it. Rather than realizing that throughout his entire history... He's done nothing but good. Done nothing but healed. Done nothing but blessed people. And yet we want to turn around and say... Well, yeah, but see, he didn't get this and he didn't do that. Whenever he has made, many of these people did not have the provision of the atonement. And they sure, Paul's revelation was unfolding as he went along. The early church didn't have Paul's revelation. The early church didn't know all this stuff. They were under, you know, writing theology as they went along, basically. That's why a lot of times you try to use the apostles, you try to use the book of Acts as, as, a, as a purely theological manual, you're going to have some weird stuff going on. 
There's some stuff in there that, I mean, okay, if you're going to use the, the book of Acts as a theological manual per se, then whose side are you going to be on? Are you going to be on Paul's or Peter's? Because if you're on Paul's, it's grace. If you're on Peter's, we still got to be circumcised, we've got to go to the temple laws, we've got to do all that kind of stuff, according to the book of Acts. Because that's what Peter did. Because he didn't have the guts to stand up and say, yeah, well, Paul's preaching is right. You see, even, even Paul at one point seemed to waver whenever he had Timothy circumcised. See, he went back under the law to a degree. It's because they didn't understand. At that point, up to that point, they didn't even know that Gentiles could truly be saved. Isn't that right? Not until Cornelius' household, which was somewhere around ten years after the, the, the Holy Spirit first fell on the day of Pentecost. So you try to go in and try to make all this, well, we need to, get to, we need to be a, a church of the book of Acts. No! Why go back and be a baby? That's the infant church. You should be the church of the book of Ephesians. The glorious overcoming church. That's what Jesus came back for. Right? He's not coming back for book of Acts church. They didn't know what they were doing. They were in the dark half the time. And it's, it's a, you know, a record of what they were doing. And there was examples and there was patterns. and all. I'm not saying we ignore it. I'm just saying you don't try to duplicate it. Because the, the, the Ephesians church is what we need to be. Amen? We're going to be a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. We're going to grow up into Him in all things. They weren't growing up into Him. They were messed up. Right? Big difference between being grown up and messed up. Right? Well, we need to grow up. Okay? Here's a question. How do you know when to cast out and when to heal? Well, you cast it out. Now, that don't work. Heal it. How's that? (laughs) Yeah. I, I I will say this. Here's something to remember. If you, in the church, we try to get specific. If you get specific and you miss it, you don't say the right thing the right way and you're so specific and you try that, the devil will hang you up on technicalities. And if you say it's specific and are wrong, the devil will know that you don't know what you're talking about. And he won't obey. But if you, as a rule, speak generalities and just in general say be healed or or, be free, things like that, then he doesn't know what you know and he has to obey because you're being general. So be general as much as possible and specific as much as necessary. Right? You get that? Don't let him box you into where you think you have to get it so perfect. Jesus was not that technical. He just said, what do you want? Receive it. What do you want? Be healed. Receive your healing. Come on. Why should we have to be... We're supposed to do greater works with less effort. Right? He had an enemy to fight. Our enemy is technically already beat. It ought to be easier for us, right? Not harder. So if he can be that general, we should be more general, right? Not more specific. We've made it harder when it should be easier. But if you get specific, the enemy will hold you to it. So be as general as possible, specific as necessary. Amen? Go ahead. Come on up. Whoever's doing whatever. Come on up. All right. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, the people that can and are going to give, we bless them. And we say, in Jesus' name, be blessed. And we say, Lord, we take these finances, we use it for your kingdom. We say, bless it. And Lord, return it back to them. Lord, those that would like to give but don't have to give, Lord, bless them. And in the name of Jesus, we thank you for the ability to extend and expand and confirm your covenant throughout the earth. In Jesus' name. Amen.